Welcome. My name is Dan Rubenstein, and I'm director of the African Studies Program, and it is a great honor to welcome the president of Rwanda, President Kagame. It really is a privilege to have him here today. He's been at the UN all morning, and immediately after the talk, he will answer some questions, and then he's got to go back to the UN this evening. Um, so we can move the program along. I would like to introduce the secretary and vice president of the university, who will introduce um, President Kagame, Bob Durkee. Dan, thank you. Typically, introductions are made by someone who knows the speaker, or at least knows a great deal about the topic that the speaker is going to address. In this case, neither is true. I am here not because I already know what President Kagame is going to tell us, but because, like others in this room, I am interested in what he has to say. Over the past dozen years, President Kagame has emerged as a major figure in Africa and on the world scene. He is clearly of interest to our students. And as you know, today's event has been organized by the African Students Association here at Princeton. It is co-sponsored by the Princeton Institute for International and Regional Studies, the Program in African Studies, the International Center, and the Bope Center for Peace and Justice. Paul Kagame was born almost 50 years ago in Rwanda. At the age of four, he left with his family for Uganda. He began his military career in Uganda and received military training in the United States before returning to Rwanda as commander of the Rwandan Patriotic Front. In 1994, he played a central role in ending the genocide in Rwanda that was responsible for the death of an estimated 800,000 Tutsis and moderate Hutus. And in July of that year, he became the country's vice president and defense minister. In March of 2000, he became president. And three and a half years later, he was elected to his current seven-year term. Earlier that year, he was awarded the Young Presidents Organization's Global Leadership Award for his role in bringing stability to Rwanda and rebuilding its economy. Rwanda is one of a group of African countries that have made sufficient economic progress that they have been nicknamed the G11 by the World Bank. As president, Paul Kagame is credited with establishing a foundation for sustainable development and with steps toward national reconciliation. Millions of refugees have been repatriated and measures have been taken to reduce corruption and rebuild school and health care systems. As I'm sure everyone in this room knows, these achievements have not occurred without controversy or without raising questions that relate to broad global issues about the use of natural resources, respect for human rights, 
and the conditions necessary for the effective functioning of political and civil society. In describing his country's post-conflict reconstruction and development, I hope that President Kagame will talk not only about what has been done, but how it has been done. We'll reflect on what he has learned and will suggest what other countries and the global community might learn from the, the Rwandan experience. President Kagame. Professor Robert Lurkey, Vice President of Princeton University, members of the Princeton University community, distinguished ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to be here at this great university of Princeton and to share views on the challenges of post-conflict reconstruction based on our experience in Rwanda. I thank the AKWAABA, the African Students Association at Princeton, and other partner organizations for inviting me, including the Princeton Institute for International and Regional Studies, Program in African Studies International Center, and the Bobst Center for Peace and Justice. I wish to start the topic of discussion by arguing today that post-conflict reconstruction involves more than is generally dealt with in a development discourse. In most of the development debates, most conflict reconstruction tends to revolve around restoration of enabling environment for stimulating productive capacities. The design and implementation of the social economic framework to guide reconstruction is considered central. While these undertakings are vital, it is my view that by far the most important and challenging task is the reconstruction of politics. The term politics, as applied here, includes values, value systems, and actors that compete for managing the state and national political economies. 
these individuals and groups of people are almost always at the front line of creating conflicts as well as ending those conflicts. This question rarely gets the attention it deserves. I maintain, therefore, that successful post-conflict social and economic reconstruction depends, to a large extent, on the nature of politics pursued. How new politics differ from the old practices that plunged society into conflict in the first place is a critical factor that ultimately determines whether or not a society makes a decisive break with its ugly past. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, the story of rebuilding Rwanda begins in July 1994, immediately after the defeat of the genocide regime, a regime that designed and executed a scheme that saw the massacre of over one million innocent Rwandan lives. In the aftermath of this calamity, we were faced with a devastating, a devastated nation of thousands of orphans, widows, and the elderly. What existed of our social safety net had been shattered by the genocide and the war that ended it. As a result, the larger part of the Rwandan population had no source of livelihood as economic activities had come to a standstill. The social infrastructure, including schools and hospitals, had been destroyed or abandoned. In any case, there were no professionals to run such facilities as most of the skilled human capital was either lost or had fled the country. The immediate challenge facing Rwanda was to mobilize both the Rwandan people and the international community to undertake emergency measures, including one, agreeing on a political dispensation inclusive of key national stakeholders and revival of basic public sector administration. Two, providing emergency food, shelter, and other social necessities to the vulnerable. Three, Resettling of over 4 million of various categories of new and old refugees, as well as internally displaced persons. Four, rehabilitating health and educational infrastructure. Five, reintegrating 
demobilized soldiers from the defeated Rwandan military as well as downscaling the new army in line with the peacetime environment. And six, containing the remnants of the old regime that continued to pose a threat to Rwanda from neighboring countries. You might well imagine the scale of humanitarian efforts during this phase. We had in Rwanda, at one point, over 250 international non-governmental organizations, NGOs, 20 bilateral and multilateral donors, eight United Nations agencies, and hundreds of freelance consultants and experts engaged in a multitude of emergency-related activities. Managing these agencies and individuals for coordination purposes became an additional challenge. Some had their own views of doing things, while others had their own agendas that were not necessarily in line with our objectives. Nonetheless, by the late 1990s, the Foundation for, Nest for Successful Post-Conflict Reconstruction had been laid. Key public services such as healthcare, education, and social safety systems were by now functioning. The case of education provides an example of Rwanda's accomplishment. Primary school enrollment increased from 860,000 in 1994 to 2 million in 2005. The enrollment in Rwanda's own institution of higher education, the National University of Rwanda, was 3,000 in 1995. 1 to 10. Mr. Vice President, distinguished ladies and gentlemen, the social reconstruction just described must be contextualized in the economic rehabilitation programs. As stated earlier, Rwanda's economy had come to a complete standstill by April 1994. Between 1994 and 2000, we undertook to restore basic economic conditions, especially macroeconomic stability. The main preoccupation of early reconstruction was the restoration of legal and regulatory framework as well as strategic institutions, including rehabilitation of the legal infrastructure, including the Justice Ministry, and law 
enforcement agencies. Two, rebuilding key economic management organizations such as the Central Bank of Rwanda and the Ministry of Finance and Economic Planning. Three, rehabilitation of national infrastructures. And four, undertaking various economic reforms to spark private sector confidence. There were many other efforts at economic reconstruction, and in order to encourage the rise of a private sector-led economy, wage and price controls on most goods were dismantled. The privatization of state enterprises sought to limit government to its core business of providing policy and investment climate. A number of oversight institutions to foster good governance were set up in the early phase. The National Tender Board was created to develop and enforce governmental procurement rules, and the Rwandan Investment and Export Promotion Agency was set up to facilitate investors to streamline the collection of tax and customs duties the Rwanda Revenue Authority was established. Other important institutions created included the Office of the Auditor General to audit public sector entities. The Office of the Ombudsman was established to play the role of watchdog over government on behalf of the Rwandan population. Ladies and gentlemen, the turning point in our reconstruction processes was in the year 2000, when the emergence phase ended and the developmental period began. A milestone of this transformation was Rwanda's ability to design and implement the Poverty Reduction Strategy paper for the 2002, for, from 2002 onwards. This strategy enabled us to qualify for external debt relief, which was obtained in the year 2005. Meanwhile, after an extensive national consultative process, in 1998 to 1999, involving policymakers, political leaders, academics, NGOs, and the private sector, a broad consensus on the development of future of our country was reached. The Rwanda Vision 2020 as it is known, envisages Rwanda becoming a middle-income country by the year 2020. Realizing this vision requires discipline, dedication, and concerted efforts, especially in the following six strategic public policy objectives and actions. One, 
building a capable state anchored in good governance and increased social capital. Two, transforming agriculture into a productive, high-value, and market-oriented sector. Three, developing an efficient private sector reflecting competitiveness and entrepreneurship. Four, nurturing a critical mass of skilled human capital in all sectors. Five, developing an integral and integrated national infrastructure system. And six, promoting regional economic integration and cooperation. We are fully aware that realizing our vision requires hard work, consistency, focus, and making difficult choices. But this is a journey that Rwandans are determined to make to overcome underdevelopment. Ladies and gentlemen, let me now turn to the subject of the role of politics, a factor that, as previously noted, is central to successful post-conflict reconstruction and a brief background to post-colonial post Rwandan politics is essential to put issues into perspective. Rwanda was led since independence to the 1994 genocide by two regimes, a one-party civilian dictatorship from 1962 to 1973, and a military dictatorship from then until 1994. The politics of the two post-independence governments may be described as exclusivist and divisive based on ethnicity. These politics led to periodic massacres of members of the Tutsi community and as a result of this legacy, Rwanda became known for its exports of thousands of refugees throughout the post-colonial period. Upon the defeat of the genocidal regime in 1994, politics as usual was unacceptable we believed that we had to change Rwandan politics fundamentally. And for it was abundantly clear from our history that exclusivist perspectives had only led our country into devastation. A political value system informed and sustained by commitment to power sharing and consensus building 
was essential for steering our country into the opposite direction from the past. It is in this sense that the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the movement I had the honor and opportunity to lead, formed the government of national unity together with other political parties. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, in this respect, participation by all political parties in the government and other national institutions was considered vital. The exception to the rule was the party responsible for genocide, which was banned. Related to this approach was the imperative of consensus building through consultative dialogue on matters of national importance. Subsequently, we sought to integrate the outlined values into permanent features of the Rwandan political landscape. This began with the elaboration of the new constitution that was extensively debated nationally and adopted through a national referendum in the year 2003. The 2003 constitution consolidates the practice of power sharing and inclusiveness developed in the government of national unity phase. The winning party in the national elections, for example, would not take all the seats in a cabinet or in any other national institution. The cabinet posts held by a majority party cannot exceed 50%. Even the smallest of parties has a role to play, political parties has a role to play in decision-making processes in Rwanda. Another innovation is the fact that the speaker in the Chamber of Deputies, Rwanda's version of the House of Representatives, cannot be from the same party as that of the elected national president. Equally important is the fact that our constitution sets a minimum of 30% for female participation in all national institutions. Currently, the percentage of women parliamentarians stands at 49. The youth are also represented in these institutions. Ladies and gentlemen, let me re-emphasize in conclusion the importance of political clarity in the reconstruction and development processes. What has made a fundamental difference in Rwanda is our determination to create a different political value system, bringing government closer to communities and in turn empowering them to hold the government accountable has been vital 
in our reconstruction work. Equally important is the realization of transferring more powers and authority to local governments. The reward in this exercise is illustrated by the fact that Rwandans are increasingly able to challenge and indeed to reject leadership that does not serve them. Finally, let me state that our modest achievements, notwithstanding, we need ideas to overcome underdevelopment. Here I invite you members of Princeton University community to engage with us in Rwanda in the fields of your specialization and comparative advantage. You would be most welcome and can make a huge difference. I thank you very much for your kind attention. Thank you, President Kagame. He will take questions. There are students with portable microphones that will move around. It's a large audience, so if you'd hold your question until you have the microphone so everybody could hear you. My question uh, refers to your policy of including all political parties but excluding the party responsible for the genocide. I'm just curious about one detail. Individuals in the excluded party, did they, did they tend to change to other parties, or were they all excluded from the process because they had been in any way, at any level, associated with the previous, with the uh, party that was responsible for the genocide? A, a bit of history to that. The this extremist party uh, in uh, 1993, when there were peace talks, when there was a dialogue, because there was an armed struggle for liberation, and later on, the government was forced to have a dialogue to negotiate for a peaceful settlement. Uh, which settlement would restore the rights of all Rwandans and the rights to be equal for all Rwandans, which would result also in not only the settlement of the problems that were existing then internally, but also to bring back all refugees that were out of the country. And this the problems with this extremist party started even before the genocide. When, according to them, even during this process of negotiations and debates that were going on, this extremist party, for it, there was no need 
one. First of all, for one section of our society even to exist, later on to return the refugees that were outside. They, they made that clear categorically. And in fact, threatened to derail the peace agreement that uh, was uh, already being worked on. And in fact, went ahead to demonstrate how serious they were and started killings, that was 1993, in different parts of the country targeting the Tutsis. And this, in fact, led to the breakdown of the peace process at the time, demanding that the government takes measures, the government of that time, to stop the killings by, and, and spearheaded by that party, including uh, some members or elements within the government itself. Later on, that was stopped and the negotiations continued. And during the period we were supposed to implement the peace agreement, that's when the genocide started, again spearheaded by this political party. Well, uh, there are two levels at this time. One, there was the leadership level that was very clear, mobilizing people to go killing that section of our society. Another level was the people now who followed them and actually carried out the killings. And they were doing that under the name of being belonging to a certain party that is identified as such, as a party that will not allow the existence of Tutsis in Rwanda. So, first of all, we could not have a, a party organized on this basis to exist. Maybe whoever wanted to exercise that right within the party to be able to kill whoever they want to kill would have to do it in a different context or framework altogether other than doing it under that party because we had to do away with it. But the members of this party had a choice. The choice was to say you have to denounce that kind of ideology where you think people who are different from you or people who are of this identity should not exist. And if you did, then the law would have to take care of you. They also had a choice to belong to other parties or they had a choice to belong to no party or they had a choice to just keep quiet but they had no choice to stand there and say that for them their identity is that which does not allow the existence of others. So we had to deal with that problem from that angle first, and that was the most important thing. To organize, to, to stop legitimacy or legitimizing uh, the, the existence of a party that has such ideology, that was the starting point. And that's what we had to deal with. 
So how those who wanted to identify with this party decided to associate themselves politically or to reform themselves or otherwise, that was their business. And we did not bother as long as, one, the party didn't exist. Secondly, as long as individuals who are like this were not allowed to actually commit crimes against their countrymen and women. Thank you. Mr. President, thank you for coming. Would you comment, please, on what your views are about the role of the United Nations in the eastern portion of the Democratic Republic of the Congo? Yes. Uh, the United Nations is in the Congo to oversee the situation obtaining in the whole of Congo, not only in the east. Though the eastern part of Congo has been a problematic area in the Congo, and more so to us as well, uh, uh, Rwanda, because that is the area that borders with Rwanda. Rwanda borders with Congo on its western side, therefore eastern Congo, but western Rwanda borders with, to the east with Tanzania, to the north with Uganda, and to the south with Burundi. So the UN came to the Congo for various reasons, but the major ones were two. even though they didn't uh, effectively deal with those uh, as the case should have been or as people would have wanted. The first reason for their coming was for the UN to oversee the stabilization process in the Congo itself, given the problems that had been there for a long time. Well, the, the, the specific problems of the last maybe uh, 12 years. There are other problems that have been in the Congo for decades. That's another issue. I'm not talking about those. So the second part uh, that had brought the UN to the Congo and subsequently the part of it going to the eastern Congo was actually to deal with these groups I was talking about that committed a genocide in Rwanda in 1994 that have been staying in the Congo for all these years, for the last 12 years. So they, they, they are in the east, as they are in Kinshasa, that is in the, north, in the, in the west, and Kisangani central and many other parts of, of the DRC. But those in the East have to play effectively those two roles, even though it doesn't happen that effectively because 
some of these groups that committed genocide that originated from Rwanda still exist and operate and organize and do different things in the eastern part of the Congo. In fact, not only being a threat and, and a problem to Rwanda alone, they're also a big problem to the Congolese themselves. They've been uh, stealing, looting, killing, raping in the eastern Congo. But the, the, the UN was there to try and, and, and deal with that challenge and deal with that problem. That's why they are there, and, and that's what they continue. So in the whole overseeing of the process obtaining in the Congo, currently this includes uh, supervising the elections that are taking place in the Congo. And uh, so far one phase is over, the, the, next, the next phase is on, there are different problems. But the UN is trying uh, to deal with that. Uh, so we, we, we just hope things will continue getting better. But certainly as of today, the situation in the Congo, both in the east and in other parts, has been getting better, not worse, even though the problems still exist. Um, back there. If anybody up top has a question, please come down because there's no microphones upstairs and there's two people in the back that you can go use their microphones. Thank you, Mr. President. It was uh, uh, very wonderful to hear you um, speak. Um, I uh, uh, can't agree more, um, as you mentioned, that um, building and creating a new political value system is um, that building um, a new political value system is crucial um, in reconstruction. Um, I was curious whether you could elaborate more the challenges as you're going through that, because how do you um, bring people to depart from this um, historical post-colonial sort of exclusivism, as you mentioned, and how difficult or easy was it not only you know within the government as you um, are building this power-sharing consensus building kind of framework that people may not be conducive to it um, right at the beginning. You know, how did you do that and how did you see that play out in civil society? Thank you very much. Thank you. Good question. Well, there are no easy questions for us in Rwanda and there are no easy answers as well. But we have to do something in any case. <laughs> we just can't let things stay on like that. So we have to start from somewhere. And what we've been trying to do, the first responsibility of our government, of the leaders at different levels, so all these processes I was talking about, the constitution and other things, we had to mobilize the people of Rwanda and really ask these questions and say, why is it that we had a genocide in our midst, here in our country, in Rwanda? What is it that justifies or later on that contributed to the genocide? For a genocide to take place anywhere, there must be something terribly wrong. So what is it? 
so the debates went on along these questions. And we were moving towards saying, can't we do things better? Can't we do things differently? Even if there is diversity in our society, can't we use the diversity that exists to the benefit of all of us, of the society and of the country, instead of using their diversity to destroy the country? So these debates have been going on, and that's, what, that's the process that led to having this new constitution, having elections, having different reforms taking place, and so on and so forth. But having these debates and looking for answers would only be helped by putting one, putting institutions in place, putting structures in place that would enable us to do certain things. And of course, another thing that would be helpful is to be seen to be doing what we say needs to be done, that makes a difference, that departs from the past that destroyed our country. And this is where the challenge comes. This is the burden on the shoulders of the leaders. If you would stand here as a leader and tell people the positive aspects of national unity as opposed to sectarianism, to defensive politics, it makes a difference. If you would stand here as a leader and tell people that they should be different from the others, and not only that, but look at the others as their enemies and descend on them and kill them, that's another problem. But that is the difference the leaders can make, depending on the message they give to people, the manner in which they behave, which, of course, people will see and, and, and learn from or pick example from. So it, it, it's, it's as complex as, as you, you rightly put it, but you, you have to be systematic in your approach. You have to identify the problems and also identify what process you take to start dealing with those problems. And that's what we have done, and so far in the last 12 years, by debates, by creating institutions, by education, by putting mechanisms in place, by putting structures in place, and by putting the laws governing all of us and these institutions and structures, a difference is being made and has been made. Hello. When you're considering the policies to implement for promoting development, development within Rwanda, to what extent do you prefer privatization and private sector-led economy, as you mentioned, over state-led development? And to what extent is this influenced by 
Counseling from the World Trade Organization. Good. Well, privatization is, is very important in, in many ways, but it has to be properly managed. And the decision to privatize state-owned entities comes again as, as a matter of choice we have made. And this choice is premised on saying that, first of all, it is not government's business to do business. But it is government's business to enable those who want to do business do it well and profitably. So that, that is one. The, the other aspect is for these entities run by government, they have been inefficient and they have also been making losses and the government has always to put in money to run these entities. Because in the end, most of the managers, they don't feel a sense of accountability. They, they think it's government money, so they use it anyhow. And, and there is not that sense of drive on, 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 on the individual basis to compete, to make profits, to innovate, and so on and so forth. So we thought the best way was to give uh, these enterprises to private people to run. My government gets revenue from those, and the private people, whether Rwandans or foreigners who buy them, we will do business, the government will, will, will benefit again, the people of Rwanda will benefit from employment, from capital inflows, and, 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 and so on and so forth. And, and, and the, those who uh, have bought these enterprises, if they run them badly, then the companies will run down, and, and I'm sure they want to avoid that more than anybody's more than a government would want to avoid that. Uh, so that, that is really the main drive. Uh, much as it has also coincided with different demands that are made at different levels, whether it is the World Bank, with his, the IMF, the relationship we have with them, they demand some of these things. Uh, so that we can have a meaningful relationship. But we don't do some of these things because the World Bank or the IMF is saying that or there are certain provisions within WTO or wherever to go in that direction. It's like really saying sometimes the World Bank people come to us and say, you know, no corruption. You must ensure that there is no corruption. But we don't need to learn 
that corruption is bad for, for, for the affairs of, from the World Bank. We know it. So we should be doing it because we know it is bad, not because the World Bank is saying it. Well, sometimes people maybe who are corrupt don't change and the World Bank is right to say we are not going to work with you because there is corruption going on here. But really for, for countries, for us to identify corruption as a major impediment to development should not be coming from the World Bank. We know it. It is as simple as that. Uh, so really most of these are our choices and, and the basis for these choices are some of the things I've just explained. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, my question is, uh, you said the, genos uh, the killing started before 1994, like 1993, they started killing. And in 1994, I believe that uh, the genocide was mobilized through uh, radio, and so probably everybody knew about it, and even the international community probably heard about it. So. They had enough time, almost everybody had enough time to know that or to figure out that something is going to happen, something big is going to happen. So my question is, especially for international community and the UN, do you think they put enough effort to stop the genocide? Thank you. They, they, they I think, put no effort at all. And that is very clear from the facts on the ground. In fact, the, the genocide of Rwanda has a long history, which goes beyond 93. It starts uh, in, in, in the 60s. That's, in fact, what produced the hundreds of thousands of refugees from Rwanda. Because when in, in, in the point of introduction, uh, I think it was mentioned, I left Rwanda when I was nearly four years old. No, it, it, my father was not an expatriate who, who left the country to go and work outside or anything, no. I left because I was running away from Rwanda. I was a refugee. Uh, living in Rwanda, uh, I left Rwanda when I was four years old, living in the neighboring country in Uganda as a refugee for nearly 30 years. So the, 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 this problem of refugees that started early 60s was still a result of this divisive politics, genocidal ideology. There are those who didn't make it. There are many who were killed uh, during that time. So 60s, 70s, and then 90s, so a genocide happened. So there is a long history. There is a documented history about it. So the one of 1994 almost came in the same manner, but this time it was even clearer because there was a UN presence in Rwanda that was supposed to oversee the peace process that had been negotiated in Arusha, in Tanzania, by 
the Rwandese Patriotic Front and, and the different political parties in Rwanda and the government. And these parties, some of them, the extremist parties, stood out and said they are not going to return, uh, to, to allow the return of refugees, they are not going to allow the Tutsis to come back to Rwanda, or even those in Rwanda actually threatened, they threatened their existence. And during the implementation, the attempt to implement the peace process, the, the peace agreement we had reached, the government came clearly out and did not allow the implementation to take place. And they went ahead and mobilized the population, trained the militias, armed them. They had even time to import arms, to import machetes. To, it, it, it was known. The UN knew about it. We gave them information. Everybody knew about it. And they knew about it as early as 1993. And it took place starting in 1994, April. It is very clear. They don't deny they didn't know. They, 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 they didn't deny knowing that genocide was about to happen, and by who? Documents are there to prove it. So many people live with that guilt, and they could have stopped it. They could have prevented it, but it didn't happen. So not much was done by the international community, not because there was lack of information. There was information in abundance. Um, I just want to know what you foresee as the future of Darfur and what you hope um, Rwanda's role will be in that future. The future of Darfur and what Rwanda what roles is in it in the future for Darfur. What is to know what the, um, the future of Darfur is mm -hmm. and what Rwanda's role will be in. Okay. Out. The future of Darfur and the role of Rwanda in that. Uh, there are problems in Darfur. Darfur is in Sudan. And it's up to the African Union, it's up to the UN, it's up to any member of the international community to raise questions about Darfur and say, why is there displacement of so many people? Why is there killing of so many people? And so on and so forth. And there have been efforts by the African Union, one, to try and bring security to the people of Darfur by deploying their troops. And Rwanda contributes one of the biggest contingents in, in, in Darfur. It's one country that has Rwanda has 2,000 troops in Darfur. 
Then the other part was to bring the factions together, the Sudanese government, the warring, the, the rebels, to sit and discuss peace and deal with their grievances so that you have an effort on the ground of peacekeepers trying to protect people on the ground, but also a political effort to try and bring the warring factions to agree on a peace arrangement that would eventually resolve the problem and bring peace to the full. To an extent, there was success in bringing the political groups together in Abuja in Nigeria because the government of Sudan ended up signing a peace agreement with a number of factions to bring peace to the full, much as others stayed outside that arrangement. And the troops in the full, the African Union troops, also did a good job of keeping peace to an extent, because here you are talking about the full is the size of France, the full alone, part of. So, and there are 7,000 troops on the ground. So 7,000 troops in an area size of the size of France is, is, is a drop in the ocean. Worse still, this is a force of the African countries that is not uh, well equipped or armed with sophisticated uh, equipment to deal with the challenges provided by the area itself and, and, and the problems on the ground. So one, the contribution of, of, of Rwanda is to has troops there who are ready to do any job that would be assigned to them by the AU or even by the UN. So the trouble today is, has come about because for African Union troops to be f operational and do an effective job, they were being financed by the donors, by the rich countries. So at some, time, at some point they said, well, we are not going to give any more money. The mission has to change to that of UN. Within UN, more money would be obtained to provide peace in Darfur. And this created problems between, and, and the current problems are that Sudan government said, no, we are not going to have the UN on our territory because the UN is not known to solve problems as should be the case. They just come here and take over Darfur and uh, infringe on our sovereignty and do a lot of things that were talked about. And instead suggested that, you no, know, you arm the African troops and ask for more of them and within the provision of the UN charter which says UN can give support to regional efforts, meaning they can give whatever is necessary, logistics, finance, and everything to a force like that of the, U, uh, of the AU should be the case. The, the Sudanese government was saying this should be the case. 
So now there are problems going on and negotiations going on, and, and recently why we were here for the General Assembly, in fact yesterday and the other day, discussions were going on to see how a reconciliation can be reached between Sudan, the government of Sudan, and the UN, and then the African Union. So what is it that is acceptable to Sudan? What is it that is acceptable to uh, the UN? In fact, for the African Union, which is already on the ground, they were saying, no, for us, if we had the capacity that is required, or if it was provided to us, we would do the job the UN would be able to do. So the, the, the problems seem to be arising out of that, but of course it has not helped the situation on the ground. The people on the ground keep uh, continuing to suffer from the chaos that is going on. So our, our, our contribution has been to give troops, but also to give our, our views, our advice within the frameworks that are available. Thank you, President Kagame. Um, I was wondering if you could, sorry, I was wondering if you could comment on how effective you think the role of the ICTR has been in implementing justice in Rwanda and whether or not that is more or less effective than, um, than options such as that which Sierra Leone um, has followed, which provides a hybrid between international and national justice systems for um, resolving conflict? Well, the ICTR has two sides to it, I, I, I could quickly say. One is that, yes, it has been useful in a sense that this symbolizes the presence, the continued engagement with the international community in dealing with this situation. But on the other hand, it has been, it hasn't been very effective. If you look at the amount of resources spent on it and the kind of job it is able to do. To date, it has consumed over 1.2 billion. I, I, I wish my country was given just half of that. It would have <laughs> it would have resolved most of the problems, if not all. And with all those resources, it has effectively tried not more than 35 cases. 35 cases. So you can imagine spending 1.2 billion in the end to try only 35 cases. While the national justice system, our own, has tried thousands of cases, and effectively, and still resolving more through the court system we have established called the Gachacha, where some of the simpler cases 
are resolved by communities and the people are, are integrated back in the society. And, and it, it also encourages reconciliation to take place. So, and of course there are other big mistakes that have been made within the ICTR. Right, right today there are cases, there is a problem between ICTR and, and our government because they, they recruited some Rwandese within the ICTR and some of them were found to be suspects themselves in the genocide. And this was pointed out long ago and it is only recently that the investigation carried out by the UN itself found that actually what we are saying was true. Specific names that were said to have been to have taken to have to have taken part in the genocide were working for the ICTR. And the information had been there for years. Later on, not only did they find out this, some of them were, were, were removed and dismissed, only dismissed, not, not tried. Because, you see, after knowing that they actually have a responsibility, they should have been tried. So our government is asking now, we told you that these people are responsible, are suspect. You have found out that to be true, so why don't you try them? So this, this has caused some misunderstanding and we are insisting that, first of all, it was wrong to use people who were pointed out with, uh, to have taken part in, in the genocide, and they just kept a blind eye and, and, and employed them. So there are those things that happened, but the major aspects of it are those that I have mentioned, the two. One last question. Much, Mr. President. Uh, my question is, how do you now guarantee accountability to your citizens uh, in a government of national unity and given that with the government of national unity the role of the op opposition in keeping the government in check now becomes unclear. What is that? So, sorry. <laughs> okay. Uh, how would you guarantee currently your current political arrangement is one of uh, having a government of national unity? So I'm just wondering how would you sort of guarantee your citizens of accountability since the role of the opposition in, you know, like keeping the government in check now becomes unclear since they form part of the uh, government? Okay. Sure. <laughs> Sorry, yes. No, I, I think it is, for example, the parliament. There, there are checks and balances in our system. First of all, there are those I mentioned of how different groups in our society are represented in the decision-making institutions or processes. That's one. Two, we have, let's say, the parliament. The parliament exercises oversight over the executive. Now, the parliament has different groups from different parties operating within. 
depending on the votes these obtained during the elections. So the first oversight of that of parliament and the presence of different political opinions within the parliament provides that accountability. Because the party represented in parliament may have a different opinion on what is going to take place, on a decision that is going to be taken or registration, a registration that is going to take place. They have the right to say no or even to mobilize to vote against it. This is sure accountability. The, 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 the whole notion of uh, opposition being something that always tears to pieces or apart what is said by the government or, or, or the other party is not the notion that would help our own situation. But the notion of saying we can be different, we can even be opposed to each other, but we have to maintain the sense of unity and sanity is what we are talking about. Because what happened in, 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 in any case, in fact, in Rwanda, of the genocide days, genocide did not uh, was, was, was basically something that was used by politicians. It has, it has that history that I, I was talking about. And they failed to understand the essence of keeping the nation as a whole and the complementarity of the different sections that make that nation. So the accountability is, is, is very clear within, between institutions uh, where the, the, the parliament has oversight over the executive, the judiciary is independent, and the different political parties have the right to exercise the freedom of choice, of rejecting that, of agreeing to that. I, I think that is the, the, the best aspect of democracy, but also the best aspect that would serve Rwandans. And there are different, as I said, the, 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 you have the Ombudsman, you have the Parliament, meaning Parliament, you have the Senate, you have the Chamber of Deputies. So the, there is a lot of checks and balances provided within our system. And the existence of these political parties and the freedom to exercise their opinion within the institutions is, is in our case serving us properly. And in fact, this also came from the choice of these very people that want accountability. President Kagame has to head back to the United Nations in particular to deal with the issues on Darfur tonight with the other African nations. Um, he's on a very busy schedule and it was a delight to have him here. And I'd like you to join me in thanking him once again for sharing his thoughtful remarks. Thank you.